0: What you're about to hear is a new podcast and live stream show entitled In the Open with Luke and Joe. In this series, my co-host Joe Seppi and I bring you conversations with community and technical leaders from the world of open source and enterprise tech. We do this live twice a month on Fridays at 12 noon Eastern time. You can catch us on a variety of streaming platforms or here as a replay on your favorite podcast app. To find out all the details, go to ibm.biz forward slash in the open. There you will find our show schedule, an embedded player of the live streaming video, as well as embeds of past episodes. Or you can link directly to the podcast page with ibm.biz forward slash in the open podcast. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoy our new series in the open with Luke and Joe. Welcome to In the Open with Luke and Joe. I'm your host, Luke Shantz, and here's my co-host, Joe Seppi, and a big welcome to our guest, Spacetech CTO, Naeem. Before we get to our show, don't forget to like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us today. We have an exciting show for you. We're going to be talking about space tech and edge computing, but before we bring in our guest, Naeem, let's bring in our co-host, Joe Seppi. Hey, Joe. Hey, how are you? I'm good. Welcome back. Glad to have you back on In the Open.
1: Yeah, it's great to be here. Second show. Rocking and rolling. Um, So, oh, go ahead. The weather is great here. And I know you know that too, because you're in Connecticut as well, but it's like, it's 58 degrees. It's fantastic.
0: It is. I feel like winter may give us another little taste, I think, but I am feeling that the Hope springs eternal. This is very it's a beautiful <laughs> time of the year. I think For there's sure. even been some space weather lately. I saw something in the news about a space hurricane. We're going to have to ask name about that.
1: Yeah. Fascinating.
0: Yeah. This is going to be a, a, such an interesting show because edge computing is a big topic that I'm interested in. And it seems to me like edge computing in space is the ultimate edge. Right. So the edge of our known world.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that kind of, I don't know if if pride is the right word, but having joined IBM a few years ago, the work that we've done with NASA, with the moon landing, I love the space tech stuff. I'm excited to talk to Naeem.
0: Before we bring him in, he gave me a short video that we could play that's going to set up one of our first topics we're going to be talking about. So let's get to that video. And without further ado. From the earliest
2: days of Apollo when NASA landed the first humans on the moon, IBM has had the distinct honor of playing a key role in NASA's space exploration efforts. Fast forward 50 years to today, when the International Space Station is helping to lay the groundwork for living and working in space, a baseline for future NASA missions. Traveling at over 17,000 miles per hour and orbiting the Earth every 90 minutes, The ISS offers a -a one-of-a-kind microgravity environment where crew members perform research that cannot be done anywhere else. Critical research like DNA sequencing on the ISS provides foundational knowledge that will be essential as NASA seeks to venture further into space than ever before. However, analyzing this research often requires data to be downlinked to Earth and processed by personnel on the ground, a procedure that can take several weeks and delay results. That's where IBM comes in. In partnership with NASA, ISS National Lab, HPE, and Red Hat, IBM created the Edge Computing in Space solution, eliminating the need to move massive libraries of DNA sequencing data by presenting containerized analytical code locally right on the ISS where the data originates. This solution has the potential to cut analysis time by nearly 50%, opening the door for many new mission possibilities. In addition, NASA researchers will use this platform to more rapidly develop, test, and push code to the ISS in a fraction of the time by leveraging Red Hat code-ready containers and connecting to IBM Cloud running OpenShift on the ground. This groundbreaking partnership will not only expedite NASA's ISS research, but will help to lay the foundation for future exploration opportunities on ISS and beyond.
0: We can't wait to support what comes next. Hello, welcome to In the Open, Name. Thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So before we dig into so many exciting topics today, let's just help our audience out with a a brief self-introduction so they get to know uh, who you are and where you're coming from.
3: Sure. So yes, my name is Naeem Moldaf. I'm IBM's Distinguished Engineer and uh, CTO for Spacetech. I run an innovation lab, which is based here in Austin, Texas.
0: Excellent. So, and maybe we should lay a little foundation here too for our audience. If Maybe we need to let people know what edge is and why. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the thing that comes to mind here is bandwidth issues, right? You can't have all the data in space and bring it back down. So I think this is actually, if people weren't familiar with edge, this is maybe one of the best use cases to help you understand why edge. Sure.
3: Yeah. So uh, let's start from the terrestrial, on the ground stuff, right? So there's a huge buzz in the industry about the, the 5G, 5G networks, right? So basically, what edge at a very high level, what edge means is that edge, or what edge computing means, wherever the data is being produced, you do computation right there. So let's say if you have a sensor far away in the ocean, which is looking for temperature, you don't want to bring all that data onto the wherever you're on prem or on the cloud and do processing. You want to do processing right there. So that's what basically edge computing means. Another good example is the smart cars in a smart home of the future and the autonomous cars. So imagine if the car in autonomous cars of the future, they are, every time they have to make a decision, they are asking the cloud or coming back to on-prem data center and saying, what should I do now? Can you imagine what can go wrong there? It has to make a decision in milliseconds right there. So that's like a moving edge computing platform right there, where it's making decisions, learning from its surrounding, from all the sensors, and making a decision right there.
1: So essentially it's really like decentralizing where the computational stuff is happening and, and which is really important with
3: all the uh, IoT devices that are proliferating around the world. Exactly. Uh, big thanks because the compute is very dense now. The microcontrollers we have right, from Raspberry Pi, Ardenos, Jetsons, Jetsons, right from the uh, NVIDIA, they are so powerful, they even have GPUs on them. So you can do inferencing, you can even do modeling. So, wherever you, in the remote areas, you can do that. And in our case, we wanted to extend that to space because, like you mentioned, Luke, the, the latency issue, the bandwidth issue. If, if we have challenges on the ground, there are much bigger challenges when we are in the orbit, around five, six hundred kilometers above. So there's a lot of stuff which happens there. We can we will talk about that. And the idea was, can we do computation right there and get the actionable level insight and send that piece of information nugget.
0: That makes so much sense. So walk us through a, a little bit more detail than what was in the video about uh, sure. what's being done now and, and maybe how it's going to be used in the future.
3: Yes. So last year, we got together with the International Space Station National Labs, NASA, and uh, HPE. And we were looking for the projects where we can you know extend the concept of edge computing in space. And they mentioned this project, DNA Sequencing, which runs in the space station. As a space station... In simple words, it's a big laboratory, which is orbiting the Earth. There's so many experiments happen for microgravity for the future exploration, right, as we are head, heading towards the next few years, towards Moon and planning towards Mars. Right? So this is like a lab in the orbit, so you can do this different tests. So one of these uh, use cases of uh, DNA sequencing was where they take a sample from the surface or they're looking for microbes in the environment, and they can do a DNA sequencing right there in the orbit. So I think three years ago, they sent this min iron device up there, which is a hand, sort of a handle device which can plug into as a USB device into a computer. And the way it worked today was last year that the PI, which is the principal investigator on the ground, they will put a request in and they say, we want to take, we want astronauts to take a sample. And based on the, whatever the schedule of astronaut, they'll take a sample and it can create up to half a terabyte of data. So it's one run. And then all of the data needs to come down. And then it needs to be processed and all the logistics and everything. A significant time has passed since I put that request in and when I get in my results back. And what I'm looking for is basically a, a resulting file, like a PDF file, which tells me you know, the resulting data. So we said, okay, you know what, uh, we can do all this processing right there. Because on February 20th this year, the sbc 2 computers from HP, they were going up with bond computers. And we were in partnership with them. You know what? We have the compute right there, which has GPU and CPUs. So all we need to do is take this open source code. And it has like multiple steps. It's very complex. Like it has the base scaling. It has the, the multiplexing alignment analysis. So we broke it down into, okay, for the base scaling, we need a much more powerful processing, which is GPU. So we used GPU for that. And then when the results comes out, we will take a second system because there are two systems for the CPU computation. So we took the open source code, uh, we containerized it, and then we use our you know OpenShift, a code-ready container platform. So we, we packaged that whole thing. Of course, there's a lot of testing, security scans you have to go through on the ground, because we had an exact replica of those two systems on the ground at NASA's facility. So we can test it before you can push it up. So we did all the testing, the, the stuff, the code was put on, I think around October on the flight system. And now they're up there, so we are hoping by end of this month or first week of April, uh, we will be able to bring systems live up and start running through the the process. And this will, and and, and just to to close, this will, the whole process will take around six to eight hours. So let's say if PI put a request in and next week it's scheduled for the astronauts to take a sample, literally after that will take probably a day or two and we will have the results.
1: And that's as compared to what before? You, you, Probably you, like yes. six
3: to eight weeks. Easy, yes. That is that's
0: huge. So, something Joe and I were talking about, uh, name when we were prepping for this, this is also exciting. And I must say, I am I have serious jealousy when I hear you talk about. Oh yeah, I was working with a space station, and they asked me if I could do this, and I feel. I like what I do, but that is definitely cooler than I think what I do. So let me ask you this. Is there any way that the average developer or student could get involved and somehow be doing something with space computing?
3: Definitely. So let's say, for, for example, if you go onto the NASA websites, they put out these different projects all the time for the community to get involved. They're also big and open source. IBM is big, huge in open source. So we open sourced two projects last year which was recognized as a top five open source projects for the game changing of future. One was about the space situational awareness and one was about the CubeSat frameworks for the autonomous uh, CubeSats or drones. So it's open to public. Anybody should be able to hit the URL just shared. should be able to hit them. And let's contribute work together.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. I'm super excited about this sort of work. I, I get these alerts when the ISS is flying over my sky, and can go out there and take my son out, and that's
3: they're out there in space <laughs> flying over. So that's really
1: cool, and it's great that folks can get involved with that work. I'm I'm really excited.
3: Definitely, and, and if you, you know, folks get a chance, right, uh, we we'll talked later about a little bit about Starlink, right? It's it's like a train of 60 sets. It's like a reindeer passing by. You cannot miss it. So. Go on the site, there are many sites which tell you when these satellites will do a pass over your location, and you can see these things. It's really good cool to see that here.
1: Yeah, and that's a good segue, too. I mean, there's lots of stuff orbiting the Earth, and I was reading a little bit about uh, the link is down there, too, the Space Tech SSA. Talk to me about that, because it's amazing how much stuff is out there from small to really large and traveling at great speeds. And it seems like it'd be a little bit of chaos.
3: Yes. So, it, by the way, the speed in the lower Earth orbit, which is around between 100 to 1,000 miles, that's classified as a, as a lower Earth orbit. They are traveling at 17,500 17, miles per hour, these objects. It is extremely fast, right? And even if you have a small debris, 10 centimeter, no, one centimeter, it can do a substantial damage if it collides with an object. So this is a very hot topic in the space industry. And you will see the names like space situational awareness, space debris, space traffic management. Basically, we are trying to have a grip on what's out there in the orbit. Now, think about you have seen these uh, sites like uh, flight radar and stuff like that, where you are are tracking your flights going from A point A to point B. Imagine if your control tower is saying that a flight coming from Austin to Connecticut and it shows you four paths. Right now, it can be a disaster, right? At, on, on the runway, you, you don't know which one to trust, which is the right path, and you have thousands of flights every day. So, so this is a problem where we need to track what exactly is there and what is the path of these different objects. And the way today it's done is through the radars and it's done through different department of defense and there are some private companies doing that. So going back to your point, what's out there, what's this, right? So to date, before Starlink came two years ago when they started launching these uh, satellites, we had launched 9000 satellites which we public knows of and out of those 5000 are active the rest is debris and stuff like that right? now in just today there was another launch from spacex to put these Starlink satellites this morning and their count i think has gone to 1200 plus now they plan to put 14000 satellites in the next 2 3 years then there's then there is a amazon Cooper. they want to put 3200 there then there is one web they want to put another 2,000. And then there is an unknown company. It's, it's still being talked about from China. They want to put 13,000 more. So you're talking about around 30 to 40,000 sets in the next three to five years. Whereas to date, we only had five to nine between five to 10,000. So can you imagine what's going to happen in, in that congested space? because commercial reason why they want to put broadband, all this stuff. So that's why we, the conjunction search, so we want to know when the objects are coming closer to each other. Just last year, space station had to maneuver three times. Maneuvering in the orbit is, is like the last resort. You don't want to burn your fuel. It's very limited and expensive. And one of the, part from our previous rocket, it was coming within a few kilometers range. And actually the astronauts had to go into the evacuation mode, I think into the Suez capsule to exit in case it was that serious. I think this is where the open source community, the developers, can really take you to the next level. And I would even go as far as, uh, this is an optimization problem. This is where quantum, This is, these are the magnitude of problems where quantum can help, even though it's we are in early stages of quantum computing, but start thinking about it. What can be done and how can we use this next generation of compute to solve these problems? Because and, and another thing is, it's causing also lots of challenges for these astronomers on the ground. You, you have seen this billion dollar telescopes in South America and Chile and Europe, which are doing this deep space observations. Now, imagine if you have this web of stuff in their path, you're obstructing with the data light coming back in. So we have to think about it, right? Like how can we optimize all these things we, and everybody's happy?
1: Yeah. And that doesn't seem our producer Scott is blasting messages at us that I think is apt, like massive air traffic controller problem. Like this isn't this sort of stuff isn't managed by humans, right? I would have to think that this is like AI, ML sort of work. And you even mentioned quantum. Like how, how do you manage, especially with the proliferation of stuff in the future? What, how do you really manage all that?
3: It's hard to know what's in the orbit just from for, for the commercial companies, even though there are a few which are emerging. Mostly this domain is owned by the DoD and the forces, right? Because they have these radars and all this stuff. So what needs to happen, first of all, this is a policy thing where the governments needs to come together and say this is a serious threat to humanity. We have to come together and work just like climate change kind of stuff. We need to work together. We need to have policies. And the technology is there. Technology is not a problem. We can use, for example, we can use blockchains. So if let's say all the agencies, they start sharing data. We can use blockchain so we can have the transparency, provenance, trust built from there so everybody knows who is touching what. In the data sphere, and then we can have AI ML to figure it out, to detect these orbits, and predict better movement of these objects. And this year, I think this year, yeah, ESA is sending out a spacecraft to clean up, to remove the debris, and that's a classic uh, traveling salesperson problem. Again, looking at supercomputing, potentially quantum in future, it can be done, but the governments have to come together. Otherwise, which what I fear is. Like any other thing would happen, they probably wait for something happen and then say, oh, now we have to get together. So I hope before something bad happens, we come together and pay attention. This is a serious problem.
1: Yeah, it's the classic kind of thing. Code is easy. People are hard. It's not just the, the code. It's the government entities and policy and getting everybody on board and working together. I imagine that's probably not easy. And then I don't know if this is a question from uh, the chat or, or from our producer here, but uh, it's a good question. Are there multiple orbit layers, like high Earth versus low Earth, varying opportunities and challenges uh, within that?
3: So there are three layers on the top. One is a lower Earth orbit, one is a middle Earth orbit, and one is a geosynchronous orbit. So in the lower Earth orbit, that ranges between 100 to 1,000 miles. And that's where most of your Earth-observing satellites' space station is above, 254 miles above majority of the stuff is in low earth orbit and that's why and since it's moving so fast that's why you you can see them orbiting almost 12 to 13 times a day these satellites and for earth observation these modern satellites which will go up they can scan the whole globe right now in two days in future in one day so your data is only all 24 hours so imagine that and then the resolution is 50 centimeter they can literally watch what's in your pocket kind of stuff right the second is the middle earth orbit. That's where your GPS satellites are there and military stuff is there. And then you have the geo, which is the above 22,000 miles above. This is where if you have the dish at home, like dish network or dish, because it's synchronous with the Earth's rotation. So it's, it's not like lower orbit, it's going zoom, zoom, zoom. So you will, you know, you will lose connection every 10 minutes because the pass is only eight to 10 minutes. In geo, you are in sync, you have dishes. So you always have a constant connection. These are three orbits, yes.
0: Fascinating. So let me ask you about the other project we're linking below here, the uh, CubeSat project. Where does that fit into the orbits and where does that fit into the the hierarchy of, of CubeSats? I'm imagining you've got these space telescopes and communication satellites at the top, and then we've got this whole continuum down now to the CubeSat.
3: So the idea behind that open source CubeSat project was basically distributed computing, and if you have a swarm of these sets, So what's happening in the industry, and I think the, from our uh, developer point of view in the cloud-native world, they can probably relate to this. Before the cloud-native containers Cube, we had these monolithic products, right? takes a long time to develop and have a very less frequent releases and all that stuff. It's a big, big thing. Think of that those big satellites, which we build for two to $300 million, takes three to five years you know, huge cost and you send it up and they stay there for 10, 15 years and that's the end of life. With the concept of CubeSat, it's very similar to microservices. So you have these very small, lightweight, you know, cheap, I mean, a pro-Cube sensors and everything is half million compared to two to 300 million. Students build these CubeSats for less than $50,000. So let's say, even if you take a pro stuff, half a million dollars, you can build these things with, within six months, within one year, you can launch them. So if you have these uh, swarm of these CubeSats and because the technology is so advanced, the cameras we have and the, and the compute power, you have a Raspberry Pi with 8 gig memory with a you know, quad core processors and everything. And with this and GPUs as well with other microprocessors. It's very powerful. So what's happening in the industry, the trend we are watching, that companies are going with these small set category, like CubeSats, even NanoSats. So what we thought, OK, if we have a swarm of these, let's say 13 of these, we launch them and there is a hurricane which is coming you know in the atlantic so basically it is fully automated fully autonomous so a signal goes from the bottom or the machine learning model detects that so there is something being formed in the ocean it asks all of its peers basically it's based on messaging system open source nats.io it asks okay who has the bandwidth in terms of resources to go and look at this problem and out of it we are available it forms a virtual cluster and it says, let's start working towards this problem. And then you can get the payload from the ground and say, here's a new model, start doing inferencing on this kind of problem. So basically distributed computing at the edge, you're forming clusters to tackle a problem. The same concept can be applied under drones. So we can have cluster of these drones in the ground. Actually, that, that brings to another point, there's a very interesting thing happening in the industry. So the next generation of communication between the ground and satellites is the optical. It's a laser communication, much faster, high bandwidth. Today, we do mostly radio signals. But the challenge over there is clouds. And most of the time the Earth is covered with clouds, the areas of interest. So how do you handle that stuff? There are companies who are saying, you know what, we can build these drones which can fly above the clouds. So they can be um, like a middleware. So they will intercept the signal from the satellite and they will do processing and then they will fly to where they have a line of sight to the ground station clear and then do a downlink so a lot of innovation is happening but i think this light optical connections it's going to move even more compute up there because you will have so much fast connections see the compute is not a challenge you saw with mars rover you know we are using the ibm's uh, you know chip power pc chip from 10 15 years ago right 750 the network bandwidth and speed is the challenge if we solve that problem, it'll be really cool.
0: That is amazing to think about. It's, it really is like some kind of science fiction scenario you just laid out about beaming data to drones that are relaying it. It rem- it reminds me, like I saw in Eastern Europe where they didn't have a lot of infrastructure. This is 20 years ago. They were building open source line of sight IR network devices. They mm-hmm. would just use like a piece of PVC and literally like the IR generator from a remote control with a lens and they could create these one kilometer like 10 megabit connections but again like you're saying once the once it gets foggy or it's raining the
3: network's down yes
1: yeah people talk about clouds moving everything to the cloud but now the clouds are in the way
3: you know we move that cloud up into the orbit, right so yeah so yeah when you were talking about ahead. drones i was like is it going to blow the cloud away yeah. that that can be interesting too right have much bigger drone with a fan and say just move aside uh, yeah, at least
1: enough to, like, get the optical connection. It's fascinating.
3: But that also brings up, uh, again, these are new problems, right? So it's very challenging, interesting stuff. So optimization path for the communication from the orbit to the ground station. Again, opportunity for machine learning, AI, potential quantum in the future. Because you cannot have ground stations like the towers, like the cell towers. It will, Earth will not look pretty if we had fifty, seventy thousand 70,000 ground stations. So if you have only limited one, how do you route efficiently? How do you route it down and how do you route between them? This is an optimization problem. Yeah. And like you said,
1: the traveling salesman, I imagine we talk about quantum emerging over the coming years. And I wonder how much more that will come into play with these scenarios that you're describing. Yes. It's really interesting. So Naeem,
0: you were on the my podcast last year and when we were talking yes. then... You had mentioned there were all of these Mars missions coming up within the next six months. And now I think all of them have played out. So could you give us just a quick little industry snapshot of what's happening with Mars and help give us some context around why it's important?
3: Sure. Yes. So last year, around summer in, I think, August, July or August time frame, these three missions flew. The first one was the UAE Mars Hope, and that was an orbiter. The second one was the Tianwen from China that was orbiter plus the rover and the lander. And then the third one was uh, Perseverance, which was the lander and the rover. So the first one, of course, uh, it takes six months to travel. And in February, the first one was the Hope probe. The second one was the the Chinese probe and rover. And the third one was the the U.S. uh, rover. So the U.S. probe Hope is orbiting. And its uh, primary goal was to look at the weather patterns on, on the Mars. And because that will help in the future if you, you know, want to habitability and sending you know, people to the Mars in the next decade or two decades, right? So it's going to learn about the atmosphere of Mars. The Chinese, similar thing, it's looking for ancient life. They will deploy their rover in May. And that is the most hardest because you saw those seven minutes of terror, as they say, when it's coming down. Because the lag is 11 minutes of communication between Mars and Earth. So if I told you something, go and execute this. For the next 11 minutes, I have no idea what you did. And within those 11 minutes, in seven minutes, it has already landed, right? So China will attempt that in May. And uh, so they are also orbiting Mars and looking for the uh, atmosphere. And then they will go to live for ancient life. So this is also very interesting because they have a helicopter Ingenuity, also attached underneath the rover. So they are doing multiple things, right? So they want to also go and look for any signs of life. Then the very interesting thing, they are going to collect these samples and then hand over to this helicopter and the helicopter will go and then there will be a future rocket come, will pick up the samples and bring it back. That's to be in the future, but that's what the plan is about. So yeah, very fascinating. I think it made some movements Yesterday or two days ago, and it can hear for also so because we have much more interesting the computers on the top. The chip was as was the PowerPC 750 single core. If you just want to do a comparison, right? So that chip is 233 megahertz, and the clock speed you have on your iPhone is 3.2 gigahertz. So it's comparing 6 billion transistors to almost 16 billion transistors. You can imagine how much difference is. But the name of the game is liability because it has to be radiation hard, and the environment is very harsh. So anyways, it's just glad to have that chip over there and the running. But in the near future, we will start seeing some very interesting things coming back. You already see the pictures coming from the from the Perseverance, right? Yep, it's very fascinating.
0: Amazing. And there's talk of within decades or decade even sending people to Mars. Does this seem realistic to you? I know that's a out-of-the-blue question there, but...
3: The, the big challenge first is... The landing, the landing is the hardest part on the Mars because of its atmosphere. You saw this time they used parachute to, to land the rover. Now, if we are talking about starship, it's a gigantic ship, almost like 10 stories tall. I think in next 10 years, if they can successfully multiple times launch, and as the window is so long, it's six month window to get there. So I think maybe after 10 years, because this uh, rover is also going to study, the atmosphere is full of carbon dioxide. So you have to convert that CO2 into the oxygen. So I think 20, 30 years, yes, That's far.
0: So interesting.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. I want to bring in a question from our producer, Scott, and this was something I was thinking about earlier too. Scott asks, are there any concerns about a critical mass of orbiting devices and crafts that somehow impacts like weather systems, global temperatures, reflected sunlight, which is something I had wondered about too, and how can we help monitor that? And,
3: and You mean for the orbit, the orbit, correct? Yeah, the orbit. Uh, orbit. Yes. So. It- it's a big concern. Like the one concern we we heard from the you know from the astronomers and the, the scientists on the ground was that you know the light which is being produced by the Starlink satellites because of so many of things is reflection and causing you know disturbance in the data. But the solar weather. So you guys mentioned, you were mentioning earlier the that hurricane which we just saw this phenomenon. The first time we have witnessed that. Basically, you, you probably are aware of aurora, right? When the when the solar winds or the solar activity happened from the sun, and it hits the magnetic field on the north and south pole. When they both combine, this beautiful thing happens, In, in the, which we call them the northern winds or northern lights, they call them. So, yeah, it's a huge concern. Actually, it's a very good question you asked. Our next open source and research project, which we just kicked off last week, is going to be space weather. Because space weather plays a huge impact the communication. So you probably have heard about that in, in certain regions of the world, The cellular communications were not available for this amount of time. This is because your sun becomes so active and it sends these flares. And we can get like two to three days in advance. NASA has the website where you can get all this data. And based on that, it will damage the electronics over there. But it hits directly on the ground as well, where it can damage the grid. So this is a serious stuff. And we are going to start working on the space weather now. And this again, open to the community who wants to help. But I think this is a very another interesting use case. And it de- definitely it has an impact.
0: I remember reading the, the scenario like this. It happened in, what, the late 1800s. They called it the Carrington event, where there was some sort of solar weather that took down the telegraphy system. Mm-hmm. And I, maybe we haven't had an event of yes. that equivalence, but we actually experienced solar weather affecting telegraphs.
3: So now we have the technology. We have the probe. We have... There is a, there's a solar probe, right, which is so close. And I just, it is mind boggling that in this probe is so close, it's watching the sunlight. So we have probes between sun and we have, I think, at least two or three layers of these probes, which are watching the solar activities. And that can help us to predict the events happening on the earth and how do we can maneuver. And again, like I said, in the next three, five years, if, if the skies are going to cover with all these 50,000 sets, the first thing is the sets are going to get affected, so everybody needs to be smarter how to use these resources because the space is for everyone. It's not for one person. It's for all of us. Right. So we have to be very smart how we use these resources.
0: What you had mentioned to the regulation around this is, I guess my question here is, this seems like a scenario where it's almost like the age of the ocean from a bygone era where you have like the law of the sea. And it like you're saying, it's based on precedence and so it seems like, obviously, we've been in space for a while, less than 100 years. But a lot of this is, like you're saying, it's uncharted territory, literally and, and figuratively, that we've got to work out with these different countries for a, sort of a collective good.
3: For, yes, for example, if you have a half a billion dollar satellite in low-Earth orbit, and I have my Cube set, and they're coming in each other's way, who should move? Common sense will tell you who should move. But so for, a similar incident happened without naming the two companies last year. One had a big satellite and one had the pizza box. And they said, move, because in the next three days, there's a possibility of collision. And, and and the messaging which is happening is through, I sent you an email. And the pizza box company said, oh, we never saw your email. And of course, the half a billion dollar guys had to move their stuff. They don't want to get destroyed, right? So you can see this. So, yeah, there needs to be policies, laws, more kind of a real time system. We have fixed this problem with the social media, the amount of traffic which flows every day. This is this is a very small problem compared to that. So I think it can be like, it's just a matter of people coming together. So when you say pizza box company,
1: I'm just imagining, you know, this, thank you for ordering a box flying
3: through the sky. What? It's, it's just like very small, but but, but there the, the was a company I think last year or a year before they said they want to advertise from the orbit, so they want to have a big display. Come on, let's not go that far, because there's so much great work happening on the ground for deep space observation. We don't want now ads showing up at the middle of night from the from the lower Earth orbit. But there's lots of crazy ideas happening right now. I'm
1: reminded when I lived in Boise a long time ago, there was a local pizza place that actually delivered a pizza to Alaska, and it was a big story. But I it did. I'm curious though, as there's more like kind of consumer sort of stuff, like how do you manage that? And maybe that's off topic, but it, it, it seems like the proliferation would just be astronomical, uh, pun intended. The regulatory,
3: the regulatory authorities, they are the only ones. Otherwise it's the wild west, right? Just go and claim, and the next thing is moon, right? Okay, who, who, whoever goes there first, put their flag, it's there, the whole moon is there. So there has to be agencies coming together and the regulatory authorities and have a plan for it. We're not opposing the technology. It's it's great for everyone, but let's have a plan. Let's not not pollute it. Yep.
1: Yeah, I was trying to explain to my son last week, like he was talking about selling property on the moon and I'm like, <laughs> you can't just sell it. Anyway, uh,
3: just reminded of that.
0: That's interesting. He was going to be, a, he's already, he's enterprising. Yeah. He wants to be a real estate agent on the moon.
3: So we add one more thing. On, on, on that note, right, the asteroid mining, right? I think, that has a, that, that's a trillion or I, I, I don't know what's the high, higher than trillion. I know it was a very some interesting word, which has like many zeros I can't count. That's the industry to go in because you go and get that rock from that flying asteroid. And we already see saw attempts last year. The Japanese agency and the NASA, they both took a sample and brought back. That's another huge area of exploration.
1: You combine that with NFTs and forget what? it. I'm going to uh, short asteroid mining. Where are we where, were we talking about some sort of astro mining thing a long time ago, Luke? What was
0: Yeah, we were at an event, I think, on Roosevelt Island at yeah, that like exactly. tech campus, and I had just read about it and I came to you and I'm like, Joe, this is a trillion dollar idea. We're gonna <laughs> yeah. we're gonna do space mining and I'm gonna set it up for IBM.
1: Trillion yeah. dollar
0: idea. And I think people were like looking at me like they were like, What is he talking about? Should I be listening to this? I'm still into it. I want in.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's funny.
0: One question that, that came to mind about the idea of edge on satellites we're talking about now, too, but I'm, I could envision now that we're going to be going more to the moon and Mars, are we going to see a data center on Mars where, let's say, IBM puts a data center on Mars and we <laughs> okay. extend that model? Is that what's going to happen?
3: So, okay. So in, in the next four years, yes, we are you know at the Artemis program uh, going back to the moon. So the uh, Nokia, they got a contract to put 4G network there. And a NASA team, they want to put a new data center. There are already discussions about Lunar Gateway. So, yes, it is happening. So putting data center, because this time, their mission is to go and stay, right? And to set up a base there for future launches from there, especially if they can find water over there and they can use that as a fuel and stuff to go to the next one. That will be huge. So, yes, data centers are coming on the moon. If this Artemis program, everything goes smoothly, we will see some flavor of Kubernetes and containers running on the Data center. That
0: is so cool. Yeah.
3: But that won't be, for example, it will be edge from else, but it's, I, I think it's relative, right? From there, it will be, they'll call it on-prem.
0: <laughs> that's a good point you bring up too, because I feel like the term, I think that's why edge is such a confusing term sometimes yes. because one person's edge is, yeah, is, a, is another person's regional CDN or something. It's all relative to where your work's being done.
3: Yeah, the the spectrum is huge, right? So let's say all the way from traditional ways of where on-prem you had data centers, then the evolution in cloud came into picture. And then you have this, let's say if you talk about telcos, right? They have MTS for the switching offices. So you can just, wherever you stop, you can say, this is my edge, right? You stop there. If you go one more further, you say, now that cell site, which if you have looked at the cell site, they have a room next to it. It has computers, everything. You can say, that's my edge. Or you can say this Raspberry Pi in my hand, which is talking to the cellular network all the way back to the cloud. This is my edge. Or somebody can say, my sensor is my edge. The spectrum is huge for edge computing, yes.
1: That's really interesting. I wanna ask you like what you're excited about in in the future, but I feel like a lot of what we've been talking about is what you're excited about and coming up. But another project I think we've talked about, I don't know if we want to get too much into it here, but the Mayflower project, you are are you involved in that as well? Yeah, so
3: me and my colleague Eric and Brett and Don were actually from the Mayflower. We actually worked together three years ago on a napkin to put this thing together. How are we are going to build this whole thing? So, yes, so we were involved from the very first day. And you have seen last year, it went to the waters and most stuff is happening. To me, what Mayflower is, in very simple words, it's a lab. It's a lab in the ocean. And it, for folks, if you can go to mass400.com, you will see the live dashboard, everything. That's what we, our team, folks, are our team, they built. I want to give a shout out to Ben Seagli and my team. He did all the development of that, most of the backend stuff. So what we see this board is a lab. So think about this. Uh, I was actually just talking to Brett two days ago. I was like, okay, you know what? Your lab is floating in some far, far areas in the ocean because I, you know, almost one fourth of the world is oceans plenty of water there and there is no connectivity right what if we have our satellite and i want to say what because of gps i know where you are can you go and check for certain things around you because you have so many sensors there and i send you a payload i send you a containerized code relay to the satellite and dump to your board and then you can do your stuff and send me the results back so that's the next thing which we are thinking about to connect space to the ocean and to the board with a satellite, and how we can do communication. And now that is an edge, right? That's an edge in the ocean somewhere. And we have an edge in the space, so we are trying to bring all these things together now.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. Really cool stuff.
0: Reminds me, too, maybe two years ago, Joe and I were doing an event in New York at a makerspace called Fat Cat Fab Lab, and one of our advocates at the time bought one of those Iridium satellite rock block development boards. Uh and it was this he did the demo sent it out through like the cloud and then everyone's like looking out the window and then it was like a lot of anticipation of is this gonna work is it gonna come down and and it did we ended up we sent the message through the cloud and we got it back through the thing and it was like a huge hit but i'm imagining the bandwidth there was limited and the coverage was was somewhat limited but now we're seeing this you're mentioning there's gonna be a over this next few years a proliferation of global bandwidth connectivity with, like you said, at least three or four different companies or governments putting up these huge communication networks.
3: Yes. And for anybody out there who's listening, right, if you're interested, just to start playing with this stuff, you need a parabolic dish, which is like 100 $120, bucks, and then a Raspberry Pi and a SDR, software-defined radio. Hmm. Just plug that in. And you if you have seen the images from the GOES 16 and 17 satellites, the full globe picture with the weather pattern, everything, the, you know, clouds, colorful pictures. You can get that every 15 minutes. I have in my back here, and because it's not a geo, so you point to it, that's it. So every 15 minutes, you will get the latest pictures, which everybody is getting. You will get in your laptop. It's, it's that easy. And, and you will learn a lot how the communications are happening between the satellite. Because you have built a ground station now. So you have a ground station at the back home, and you plug it into your laptop, and you're getting these images. And if anybody does, you just Google it, Core 16 Open Source SDR. You will get the whole stuff written there. Just follow the instructions, you will have it.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. That's, uh, I've mentioned before, I have a, a young son. I'd love to put that together and just really explore the connection between us and what's out there in space and whatnot. It's really cool. And I was going to ask too, I'm glad you jumped in with that, but are there other ways to get general, regular people involved in some of this work in that sort of tangible way?
3: Yes. So there's a community called Satnox. And basically these are amateurs all over the country and all over the world. And you can get the code run on Raspberry Pi and they're basically getting signals. You just need a software-defined radio dongle. It's a USB device. And you can start getting signals from, you know, they are the, actually the first ones. Whenever you launch uh, launch the sets or small sets, they basically broadcast a message to all these amateurs who can find first signal, right? And it's just very cool. So if you want to learn about that, yes, be part of that community. Very cool.
0: We should do that. I feel like that would be a great project. We could even, uh, I'm sure that you said there's tutorials out there, but maybe we could even yes. do like a, a blog post on IBM developer about that. Yeah. And yeah, that's so interesting. I w- I definitely want in.
1: Yeah, I had we had a, a dish satellite on our new house here, but we use regular uh, DSL or whatever it is. And so I, I actually took the dish
3: off and we're using the arm part to hang a bird feeder. <laughs> See, I did the same. When I got that parabolic dish, I used the you know, old arm of that dish and I plug it there and put it in the floor and it's now pointed out. Here.
1: Great. I'm glad I didn't take the whole thing down. I can just hook up a better uh, parabolic dish on there too and just get started. It's great. And I
0: also wanted to mention that regarding the CubeSat stuff, I found a blog post that your team put up, and that's the link to the blog post that has some stuff about the, the CubeSat project.
1: Cool. And we, it looks like we've got a question from Facebook. What's the role of Kubernetes in this, from edge to satellite? Question mark.
3: Yes. So the, this was the experimentation which we did with the ISS for the DNA sequencing. Basically, we, we containerize the code and we use the Q platform so we can run multiple workloads in the future. But again, depending upon the footprint of your hardware, let's say if you only have Raspberry Pi, you can use Podman to run your container. The goal was to run a containerized code, which is a self-containable, clean. I don't have to be dependent upon because when you're in the space there, it's air gap environment. You don't have luxury to go and let me go and grab something from the Internet. right? You can't do that. It has to be everything enclosed. So that was the reason we, you know, and plus we had higher resources to run this DNA sequencing. But, for example, if I had to do my cube set, unless I don't have a very lightweight footprint of cube, I will probably use Podman.
1: Interesting. And you, I don't know if it's what we've mentioned here in the video, I saw Red Hat as well. Is that OpenShift running on, on some of this? Yes. And is it the code-ready containers? I'm curious, do those have the code-ready containers, are they able to be deployed on these smaller systems? I was under the impression that you needed a, a
3: development machine to really run those, but how is that working? Yes. Yeah, because again, on, on this system, these are like the enterprise class servers, so it wasn't a problem okay. to run this. But if we are looking at a lightweight, then yes, a little bit more power, but there's, I know there's some work being happening, but you'll see some interesting stuff happening in the next few months.
1: Yeah, really cool,
3: really cool.
0: And just this is like a question slash comment. Joe, I know you're deep into the JavaScript, but if you do any computing for these satellites, no hot linking any NPM stuff. You got to <laughs> put that in the container. It's just not going to, yeah. can't have that. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry.
1: <laughs> this is dumb, but in uh, last year's OpenJS World Conference, we had a NASA astronaut as one of the keynote speakers. And of course, my question is, NPM modules are heavier, the heaviest thing in the world. And yeah, I don't know if that's actually true, but I had to ask, silly. Cool, you know, are are there any other things that you're excited about that you wanna share, Naeem, before we we look to wrap up?
3: Yes, a couple of more things. One thing as IBMs, uh, we are going to very soon uh, release an official space tech report, our vision, and we reached out to industry leaders. From instead of just going to like a hitting NASA ESA 30 times, we went to all the different startups on the terrestrial networks and see what they think of space. How are they related to the space? So to get a, a much broader view of what the industry thinks about space. So we will have our vision, what we think, what we have a long history, like you mentioned that in the beginning. Right. So we are no strangers to space. But so we put our vision there based on the current and future technologies. And then we will have a point of view from all these industry leaders. And so the stay tuned, that will be coming soon. And just a teaser, you know, I I think I mentioned about the uh, the CubeSat stuff, right? So I want IBM to be seen as democratizing access to space for everyone. That space, because imagine, right? to, To build something and launch, it's a privileged thing. It's only few nations. And within those few nations, only few groups can do that. I think about majority of well. because space is an inspiration. When you talk about space to anyone, regardless of their, whatever field they are in, it's very inspiring. It's, it's just like we look at above and like every night, like, every night I just go up and then just look at the sky. It's like so peaceful and calm and so and it gives you inspiration. So the goal over here is that we open it up to everyone in the world that, you know, what, what the goal here is the kids sitting somewhere in far, far part of the world. And they write this, you know, very simple, a python code and just submit to us and we will push that code all the way to the space and it will do some computation and come back with the results so, so they can also feel attached to you know to the space that's yeah that's cool
1: yeah that's cool if you could put a message up in space that would be even cooler but i know that's probably but it's true i walk the dogs every night and i do it i, I live in the woods now and the lights are out and I, I just stare up at space and it's just really amazing it's really cool yes.
0: There was some company a while back I saw that was doing some sort of artificial meteor showers where they would like basically send up some sand and then throw it at the certain time and you'd see this thing. but I, I don't know if that really that didn't scale. i'm I'm pretty sure. The, uh, it's,
1: a, it's a good question though is that a, is that part of the air traffic controller work that's being done? Not just are they colliding, but like any sort of meteors or meteorites coming uh, into the atmosphere?
3: Any activity over there? Yes, because they have the equipment to to watch for those things. Yes, definitely. Nice. So, uh, measure it and share it. Sharing is key. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And are you finding in this work like collaborating with other entities and governments? I, I, like I said earlier, people's the hard part. But are people generally working together well and coming up with policies collaboratively
3: in a positive way? Yes. So one of the leading professors, his name is Moriba Bajar. He's from UT Austin here. And uh, he is like the most uh, vocal in, our, in, in the space. And he's very well versed with the knowledge and everything. So we have been collaborating with him since last year. And these open source projects for the space, we were working with him. Actually, we had a call with him yesterday also. where We are going to look how the space weather has an impact on the objects in the orbit does it move up whatever happens the characteristics of the object yes we are collaborating with the universities very closely yeah that's great that's
1: great i encourage folks to follow naeem on twitter and the work that 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 he's doing because there's just so much interesting stuff happening now and happening in the future it's really cool thank you
0: yeah and it seems like if we get this figured out and we do this the potential upside here is we live on this finite earth with finite resources and if we can make this transition and get into space mining get Communication, energy—it's really it could be the new new boom up up there.
1: Yep, very cool. Let's see
0: if there's any other questions coming through. I think we are going to try to wrap at the top of the hour because that's what we're scheduled for. There was some question about—it's not really a question, but it said something about making the environment safe for DNA. I think it's a question about is the DNA does it get damaged in space? Or I guess imagine if it's inside the space capsule that's radiation shielded. Yes, it is. Yes.
1: And so, uh, it seems like we have another question here. Can satellite images provide real-time traffic control, maybe for self-driving communications too? Do we have a system uh, perhaps good enough to continuously track so many areas and so many vehicles, I guess maybe is the question? Of course, GPS is
3: there, right? So, you know, if you use Waze and all these apps, the traffic stuff. And, but the, uh, the interesting thing, which we just heard uh, two days ago, that Starling is going to open up for the mobility, for the trucks, vehicles, uh, ships. So I think that the more productivity you have, the more precision will come in the picture. So yeah, I think this is a big disruptor. For example, for the people who are listening, think about these use cases. So think about when the natural disaster, anything occurs like that, or the fires or any of these things for the first responders, right? You're in very remote areas. If you have a little bit of light compute and you have this, Starlink antenna, you just plug it there, now you're connected to the world. So there are so many use cases because internet connectivity is not everywhere, even though we assume that maybe it's everywhere, but if you go a little bit north of cities, the connection drops drastically, the speed and everything. So that's why the FCC awarded these big contracts to provide the broadband connectivity to all over the US, right? And that's where the governments are coming up now and thinking, okay, if I will have a connectivity at two, 300 meg. In far, far areas, what can I do? You can do so much environmental monitoring, so many things. So, yeah, I think it's a game changer. Just keep an eye on that. Yeah, really cool.
0: Thank you so much for your time. It's been really a pleasure having you as a guest. And thank you to our audience for spending this time with us chatting. And I think, Naim, let's maybe later on this year at least come back give us up because there's so much going on in this space. We'd love to have you back on.
3: Thank you so much, Luke and Joe, for having me on it. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's been great.